Welcome to this podcast for the BJSM community and I'm particularly pleased to be speaking with Dr. Asim Alhotra, a consultant cardiologist from London. And he and two colleagues have just written a very provocative but important piece about the cause of heart disease. His colleagues were Pascal Meyer, the editor of Open Heart, and Rita Redberg, a massively respected cardiologist from the US who's editor of JAMA Internal Medicine. Asim, thanks for joining the podcast today. Hi, Karim. Nice to be here. Tell us why you thought it was time to bring a few important points to light in one short piece. I think the first thing to say, Kareem, is that the reason that we wrote this piece at this time is that the um, global campaign for decades to lower cholesterol through diet or drugs has failed to curb the pandemic of heart disease. And the reason behind that is because there is a realisation more and more now that the current approach to combating heart disease is fatally flawed. And I think the first thing that we mentioned in the editorial to try and put to bed, essentially, is this over-obsession with saturated fat and heart disease. And we use the best quality evidence. We use systematic reviews, both of observational studies in healthy people, which showed no association between consumption of saturated fat and measures, whether it's all-cause mortality, cardiovascular mortality, heart attack strokes, um, type 2 diabetes. But also, in secondary prevention, um, we cited research published in BMJ Open in 2014 that showed a systematic review of randomized control trials showed no benefit from reduction in fat or saturated fat in any cardiovascular outcome. And what was interesting was even replacing saturated fat with polyunsaturated fats um, in people with established heart disease had no benefit either. So we wanted to use up-to-date, high-quality evidence um, which essentially you know, puts to bed this obsessional with, with saturated fat and its link to heart disease. The, the rates of heart disease have gone down. So what if the critics say you know, the, the approach has been successful? How, how do you dispute that? Yeah, that's a very fair point, Kareem, and, and people do mention that. So I, I've, I've also alluded to this before in an editorial written in the BMJ in 2013 about saturated fat not being the major issue and we should shift our focus to sugar. And it's great that now that, you know, uh, and obviously when I first wrote that, there were a lot of critics coming out saying, what's this guy going on about sugar? And obviously everyone's talking about sugar now. So I think, you know, we've made some progress there. Um, the um, the issue about cardiovascular mortality reduction in the population, which has happened in the last 30 years, is absolutely correct. But the factors that are quite clear that have reduced that cardiovascular mortality in terms of public health interventions are reduction in smoking. That's probably had the biggest impact. Reductions in trans fats in the diet, but also um, better acute treatments for cardiovascular disease or for heart disease in particular, which involve emergency um, treatments such as stenting for heart attacks as well as also better use of coronary care units where we have um, rapid defibrillation for people suffering cardiac arrest because of coronary events. So all of those factors together are more than enough explain for the reduction in cardiovascular mortality. Interestingly, people often also cite statins. Now, although randomized controlled trials um, reveal that there is a marginal effect in reduced mortality one of about 1 in 83 when you look at numbers needed to treat for people with established heart disease taking a statin for five years, when you actually look at the overall population, um, interestingly, an ecological study, again published in BMJ Open not so long ago, revealed that there was no reduction in overall mortality in the population in Western European countries in secondary prevention. Now, how can that be explained? I think one of the reasons is 
um, a separate analysis that looked at giving statins both in primary and secondary prevention, looking at industry-sponsored randomized controlled trials, which obviously have their limitations, only showed that if you look at the statistics slightly differently and take the population as a whole in those RCTs where people were adhering to statins, and that's crucial, every day for five years, the median increase in life expectancy was four and a half days. So if you think about the fact that in community-based studies, um, more than half of people stop their statins within a year of prescription, and most of those side effects are the reason, it's easy to understand why we've not seen any significant reduction in mortality in the population from people taking statins. So there's a big issue there around the drugs approach as well because of lots of different reasons, including you know people certainly um, claiming to experience side effects, and in my own practice I see that quite frequently, often reversible and reducing the dose of the drug. Um, but... To answer your point, I, I think it's quite clear there is no evidence to suggest that reduction in saturated fat per se has had any effect in reduction in cardiovascular mortality in the population. Let's move on to The Guardian. It was great to get promotion of the paper in The Guardian. Um, two, two articles, one sharing what you found and then one somewhat critical saying that there's been a backlash to your article. Can you summarise that for our listener? Yeah, sure. I think I've looked at those um, critiques that were in The Guardian, and it's also good to note, Kareem, that we, you know, that this was picked up internationally as well by CNN and Reuters as well, as well as many of the newspapers, including The Telegraph and The Mail and The Express. Um, but it's interesting, yes, The Guardian is the one that seemed to report quite extensively the, the critiques. And I'll summarize those critiques, first of all, as a combination of, um, in my view, sheer ignorance. There are clearly people that haven't read the editorial, and a combination of both intellectual and financial conflicts of interest behind some of the views expressed in that Guardian article. Um, I'll just pick a few of the issues that were mentioned. Um, I think one originally was by the British Heart Foundation in their press release, where they made a factually incorrect statement regards to heart stents, suggesting that they save lives. That is true if you're having a heart attack, but it's very clear, and most cardiologists from the all would agree that it's very clear from randomized control trials that stenting stable lesions in coronary artery disease does not prevent heart attacks for long life. So my, my, my guess is the BHF, I think, at, at best just made a mistake. The other thing that was mentioned by a few people is that there was this mention that we cherry-picked evidence. Well, if you go and read the editorial, specifically on the saturated fat bit, um, I don't think there's any cherry-picking there. Both of the citations there were systematic reviews. So um, uh, they need to provide better evidence than that to, to the contrary to suggest why we had cherry-picked, and I can't see any reason for that. So as far as I'm concerned, that was complete nonsense. The third thing to mention is they, uh, what has brought, been brought up a few times is a Cochrane review, which we didn't include in the editorial, um, which was done in 2015, which suggested there was a reduction in cardiovascular events uh, from replacing saturated fat with polyunsaturated fatty acids. But the reality is actually that Cochrane review was fatally flawed. It did not show any evidence of reduction or cause mortality, cardiovascular mortality or heart attacks. And um, the event rate reduction that was mentioned actually was a very specific small um, group of studies that were included. And in fact, one of the best criticisms, if people want to read in more detail, I don't want to go into a lot of detail on it, um, is, has been done and, and, and reported and posted in a blog by Professor Grant Schofield from New Zealand, who's an epidemiologist, and George Henderson, um, and his actual, in quotes, um, in reference to people mentioning the Cochrane Review as being, um, you know, reliable evidence, um, his quotes were nonsense. Um, so I think people can look at that and, and read into that in a bit more detail. But actually, you know, what we were saying, interestingly, in some ways, does support 
some of what the Cochrane Review was saying, and that is that we're not saying that people should consume diets high in saturated fat. What we were saying is that saturated fat has been, the focus has been misplaced, but actually what we should be doing is looking at the evidence where there is outcome benefit, Kareem, from randomized control trials with dietary interventions. And that comes from the two um, citations, the two studies that we cite were the PREDIMED study in primary prevention and the Leon Hart study where they showed there was a significant reduction in strokes in the uh, PREDIMED study, which was basically a randomized control trial, which was government-sponsored, Spanish government-sponsored, that looked at several thousand uh, people at high risk of cardiovascular disease, and they showed a, uh, an NNT of 61 numbers needed to treat and in stroke reduction um, in people adopting what was a, a higher fat Mediterranean diet, which is 41% fat, um, as, as opposed to an advice to follow a low-fat diet, which was only a very small difference in fat consumption, 37% in the control diet, diet, which interestingly, and we mentioned this in the editorial, was still a relatively healthy diet. They were still advised to have less sugar, for example. Um, interestingly, the saturated fat content in both those um, groups, both the intervention and the control group in PREDIMED, was less than 10%. But you see, at the time of that study, when it was conducted, um, you know, global the, the sort of advice um, across Western European countries, if you like, um, around saturated fat was to consume less than 10% uh, of fat from saturated fat. They wouldn't have got ethical approval at that time if they had said people should consume more saturated fat. But what's interesting is the saturated fat consumption in both groups was similar. And when the results were um, published, the interesting aspect, both in the Leon Hart study and secondary prevention, which was much more powerful in reducing cardiovascular uh, event rates, reduction in all-cause mortality, reduction in cardiovascular mortality, even reduction in cancer, um, there was no difference in cholesterol between the two groups, which suggests that the mechanism of dietary um, uh, benefit from, um, in these trials has nothing to do with lowering cholesterol, which brings me on to another point, which is all the dietary interventions which have um, lowered cholesterol for the purpose of lowering cholesterol have never shown any outcome benefit. So the whole uh, hypothesis is, is fatally flawed and, and that needs to change. A lot of powerful messages for the listener there, Asim. And if a person is thinking about their own cooking, when you say polyunsaturated fats and when you say saturated fats, what are the practical implications of what people should do from what you've told us so far? I'm glad you've raised this point. When we talk about polyunsaturated fats, in layman's terms, basically what's happened over the last three decades with this demonization of saturated fat and the whole cholesterol as the villain is that people have replaced foods like butter with um, either vegetable oils or margarine. And the vegetable oils are really high in polyunsaturated fats, especially omega-6 fatty acids. But there, there, there's a problem. There's a, there are two issues with this. One is there is very good research um, which shows that if you heat these vegetable oils to high temperatures, just from simple frying, then they become unstable. In fact, they release compounds called aldehydes, which have been linked to both cancer, dementia and heart disease. There's also concern regarding the uh, omega-3 to omega-6 ratio in the population where traditional diets... Um, had ratios of around 1 to 1 or 1 to 2 of omega-3 to omega-6. But modern Western diets, um, the ratio is much higher, around 25 to 1 and of omega-6 to omega-3, which seems to be a problem. In fact, there was a very good editorial in BMJ Open Heart, which obviously Pascal is editor of, um, by Artemis Simopoulos, 
who is a researcher in this area based in the United States. They did a very extensive editorial looking at the science and basically saying that omega-3 to omega-6 ratio is very much implicated in, in, in many diseases, including cancer, and is pro-inflammatory. And that brings us back to the issue about the heart disease being more of an inflammatory condition um, that, that underlies the process of, of development of coronary disease and cardiovascular events. So um, that is the problem. And then obviously, so you're consuming too much omega-6. Certainly from my perspective and having looked at the evidence, you know, I think the best um, cooking oil, certainly, or the best oil that someone should be consuming is extra virgin olive oil. And that's a, an oil that spans all across the Mediterranean regions and, you know, clearly showed to have benefit in the PREDIMED study where people were consuming at least four tablespoons of extra virgin olive oil per day in, in, the, in the intervention arm. Um, but also is relatively stable when it's heated um, and seems to be very beneficial in, in many different ways in terms of health benefits. And then we talk about other things such as butter and coconut oil, which are also very stable when you, when you heat them. But as we've pointed out, obviously in the editorial, these are the typical uh, oils that are high in, very high in saturated fatty acids. Um, and it's not that I'm saying this should make up predominantly your diet, but certainly once you get the base right, um, and we've mentioned that in the, in the nice graphic that was done by the, um, you know, the graphic artist for the, for the editorial, uh, where we actually mentioned that, you know, the, the key beneficial components in our view, when you look at the evidence uh, from the Mediterranean diet, the key things are extra virgin olive oil, handful of nuts every day, um, lots of vegetables, clearly fibrous vegetables and oily fish, which is high in omega three. And just to add to that, you know, the, the foods that certainly are implicated in the insulin resistance syndrome, which we'll come on to in a second, um, are excessive consumption of refined carbohydrates um, described by a cardiologist in Australia, Ross Walker, recently as a white death diet, which includes sugar, you know, white bread, pasta, too much potatoes. And uh, those are the sorts of foods that, um, you know, we, we are recommending people should be avoiding. Um, and then obviously we combine in, uh, we'll come to the lifestyle, other lifestyle aspects as well, which we believe are going to have significant impact on reducing cardio, uh, coronary disease if people um, institute them. There was one other criticism of the paper before we forget from the Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine at Oxford, which is a prestigious brand. So to answer that, um, I'll, I'll come on to the specific criticism from the Centre of Evidence-Based Medicine in a second, who you know, I have a lot, lot of respect for as an organisation, a lot of great work, but they are not immune um, to errors or bias, and I'll elaborate that in a second. Um, I think one of the important issues to mention, which we again focus on in the editorial, is that traditionally people um, take cholesterol and they know about the good cholesterol, HDL, and the so-called bad cholesterol, LDL. Now, the first thing to say is um, the, the drug and dietary focus through saturated fat reduction has been on reducing LDL cholesterol. But when you look at cardiovascular risk calculators, something called the Q-risk calculator that doctors use to calculate someone's risk of a heart attack or stroke in the next 10 years, um, LDL cholesterol is nowhere to be seen. What is used is your total cholesterol divided by your HDL to give you a ratio. And the lower the ratio, the lower the risk. So what actually tends to happen is when people eat saturated fat um, from certain foods like butter and cheese, etc. Traditionally, yes, it may well raise LDL cholesterol, but it raises HDL, the good cholesterol as well. And the overall effect on cardiovascular risk is therefore neutral. And this is also supported as a statement that was made by uh, a very well-known repeated researcher called Darius Mozaferian in the United States. To add further to that, Kareem, um, I was involved in a systematic review that was published in BMJ Open 
uh, not so long ago that looked at the so-called bad cholesterol. Everyone's, you know, has, has been very obsessed with getting their bad cholesterol lower. And what we did was uh, we looked, we did a systematic review looking at people aged over the age of 60. And what we found was that there was no association with uh, cardiovascular disease. And there was an inverse association with all-cause mortality. In other words, the higher your LDL if you're over 60, the less likely you are to die. And one of the mechanisms for that could well be because cholesterol is very heavily involved in the immune system. And um, it may protect against people getting infections such as pneumonia and gastrointestinal illnesses, which is a problem for people, you know, elderly people, you know, can die from these infections. So that may be a protective mechanism. But I think the point to be made, um, we were criticized by the Center for Evidence-Based Medicine for this, saying that we had used obsolete or flawed methodology to do this. Um, there's two things I would say. One is there's no one that's come out with any kind of counter analysis to suggest that our findings were incorrect. But even if they did, what are we going to find? We may find a weak association, but it clearly still doesn't uh, undermine essentially what we were saying, that this has been grossly exaggerated as a, as a risk factor um, in people and the elderly in particular. But the second thing is, um, this is where the Center of Evidence-Based Medicine made a mistake. Um, one of my friends and colleagues is the director of the Cochrane Collaboration in Bahrain. His name is Professor Zibis Fedorovich, and he pointed out that when the Center of Evidence-Based Medicine did their blog criticizing this paper, they mentioned something called the AMSTAR methodology um, that should uh, have been used, or they implied it should have been used, um, in uh, our paper was a better way of analyzing the data. But in fact, actually, that's incorrect because this methodology has only been validated for interventions and treatments in randomized controlled trials. This was an associational study. This is a looking at the association of LDL. So they appear to have got that wrong as well. So, uh, and the second thing, Kareem, I, w I must mention this because I've kept quiet about this for some time. Um, they also mentioned that I failed to declare conflicts of interest, suggesting that I had links to the pharmaceutical and the food industry because I am an advisor to the National Obesity Forum who um, over the years apparently for conferences have been linked to some financial links for funding their conferences. So there's a few things to be said there. One is the National Obesity Forum doesn't take any money um, uh, directly from any industry. Two, I'm an unofficial voluntary advisor to them. So to suggest that I'm somehow funded by the meat industry is defamatory and incorrect. And I wanted to uh, make that statement now. And they also suggested that um, because of my role as a founding member of the Public Health Collaboration, which is also involved in a, in a report suggesting fat was not the major issue, um, that there was a report that was being sold on Amazon, um, that uh, therefore there was a financial interest for me. There is no financial interest whatsoever. I do not make any money from this. And in fact, I'm not even, I wasn't even an author on that specific report. So they've made a, a few uh, you know, errors there, which in my view um, suggests one, a lack of rigor and clearly a bias from the Center of Evidence Medicine, who I have a lot of respect for, but as I just wanted to point out, they are not immune from either bias or error. So let's get the take-home messages, a short version of what do you think the key problem is with nutrition right now and what you advise given the findings and the information you shared about coronary artery disease? Let's not ignore the elephant in the room. The elephant in the room is that the root number one risk factor for heart attacks is insulin resistance. And I'll elaborate that a little bit more. Um, very good data in the United States from not so long ago looking at well over 100,000 people admitted with heart attacks has revealed that 66% of people admitted with heart attacks have the criteria, fulfilled criteria for metabolic syndrome, which in some ways, in many ways, in fact, is synonymous with insulin resistance. So this is a, 
a syndrome where you have any three of the following five criteria, which is high blood pressure, impaired glucose tolerance or type 2 diabetes, increased triglycerides in the bloodstream, low HDL or low good cholesterol, and increased waist circumference. If you have any three of those five, you have metabolic syndrome, and it has an adverse prognosis. Interestingly, in the same data, 75% of people admitted with heart attacks now have normal total cholesterol, and almost 75% have normal LDL. So clearly there's something being missed here. And, you know, one of the best um, uh, studies to look at the, um, uh, you know, to, to look at the risk factors was published in Diabetes Care in 2009. And that was a mathematical modeling study. And what they found looking at different risk factors is that if you addressed insulin resistance in people aged between 20 and 30, you'd prevent, you know, obviously this is not perfect in terms of numbers, but it just puts things in perspective. You'd prevent 42% of heart attacks. If you addressed hypertension, that came next. Um, uh, I think if I'm not wrong, it was 31%. And actually, if you go down, the next one after that was low HDL cholesterol. Then you had BMI. And actually, closer to the bottom was LDL cholesterol. So LDL cholesterol is implicated, certainly in cardiovascular disease in terms of association if you're under 60. Um, but again, it's not as strong as insulin resistance or anywhere close. And again, that doesn't distinguish between subparticles. So there's another interesting aspect of the whole LDL story is that LDL itself is broken into type A and type B subparticles. And the type A particles are the ones that are considered um, what we call large and fluffy. And the type B ones are the ones that are atherogenic, which are small and dense. Interestingly, saturated fat seems to increase the type A particles. Refined carbohydrates and sugar increase the type B. So there's a lot of nuance here, which is extremely important. But the point is insulin resistance seems to be the number one risk factor for heart attacks. And therefore, we should target insulin resistance. But it's also responsible or associated with 50% of, of high blood pressure, which is the biggest risk factor for death globally overall, and is also the precursor for type 2 diabetes. Before you discuss the treatment of insulin resistance, I find it a slightly awkward concept. And if you say to the man in the street, insulin resistance, it doesn't have an immediate uh, psychic response. What's the best way to think of insulin resistance and then how do we treat it? I think, first of all, let's explain it. So insulin resistance, essentially, the body over time become resistant to the effects of the hormone insulin, which is the hormone that's responsible of maintaining blood glucose levels within, um, you know, correct range. Um, and what increases insulin resistance over time, which is, you know, for the layman in a way could be, you could say it's a precursor. It's something that happens before you get type 2 diabetes, which most people understand as a problem with, with glucose control, is that um, certain foods that are responsible over, you know, constantly, if, if you like, your body being um, hit with foods that are very high glycemic index foods or added sugars, lots of added sugars, that increases insulin resistance. And obviously over time that can then you can develop the insulin resistance syndrome, which, as we said, overlaps with metabolic syndrome. Um, and essentially that's what insulin resistance is. But the interesting thing is that insulin resistance is not just obviously linked, as we mentioned before, to heart disease and a precursor of type 2 diabetes and high blood pressure. But the solutions come through dietary changes exercise or what i'd prefer to refer to really as mindful movement i think we need to move away from exercise but let's we can use exercise and stress even one night's poor sleep cream um has been shown to increase insulin resistance in the blood which is also linked to stress as well so sedentary lifestyles you know 
Um, we know that people who do at least 30 minutes walking five times a week compared to sedentary individuals over even a few months, independent of weight loss or obesity, will reduce insulin resistance in their bloodstream. So actually, you know, we don't want to oversimplify it, but we're missing the elephant in the room here that, you know, 80% of, of heart diseases relate to poor lifestyle. And um, you can combat the majority of this in our view. And this is what we're, the point we're making in the editorial by, compact, com, by concentrating on uh, reducing insulin resistance. And the best solution for that is not through drugs, it's through lifestyle changes. Nice science underpinning practical implications. What's the 30-second take-home message for the listener? I think the take-home message, Kareem, is that you know the future of our healthcare is going to be lifestyle medicine and adopting a high-fat, low-refined-carbohydrate Mediterranean diet, mindful movement or exercising regularly and reducing stress is more powerful than any drug in both the prevention and the treatment of heart disease. And that was Dr. Asim Malhotra. The links um, are with the podcast related to his provocative editorial in the BJSM. You can find a lot of information about healthy diet, exercise on various BJSM resources, obviously. We encourage you to follow Twitter at BJSM underscore BMJ. And I do hope you get a chance to have a physically active day today. Thanks for listening.